0: So, hey, I want to start this week um, where we're going to talk about the knowing the Bible. With It's actually an advertisement from Desiring God Ministries of a new free online Bible study tool that they're doing that is actually on a blog I published this morning that you can access, and I would highly recommend it. But the reason I want to show you this up front is because I love the way that he describes the worthwhileness of going after the Bible. So let's take a couple minutes and look at this
1: there is no book like the Bible. The story begins with the making of the universe. Everything we see and hear and smell and touch and taste and everything our satellites are just beginning to find in space. It explains what went wrong with the world, how calamity and disease and conflict, every sorrow came into our lives, and how it will all end. In the Bible, we meet God the one who made all things planned all things reigns over all things and who is saving for himself a people from every tribe and tongue and nation on earth history's best plot lines are found in the pages of this book miracles political intrigue natural disasters war brokenness and need faith rescue victory great acts of love It's like a lost city of gold to be discovered and explored and treasured. A treasure hunt that never ends and yet rewards you at every step. The more you find, the more you are able to find. And it's all from the mouth of God himself. You may think, wait, I've read the Bible. You're making it sound more interesting and exciting than it really is. I don't think so. In fact, I think we can only ever begin to see how amazing this book really is. But first, we need to learn to look. Look at the book is an ongoing series of short videos. And what you see is the text, not the teacher. In each lesson, you and I will pull our chairs together up in front of the Bible, and you'll watch while I try to plunder every line for all it's worth, pressing in underlining, circling, drawing connections, making notes. Together, we will look and look and look at the book until we see the treasure that's really there. We want you to see the treasures of the Bible for yourself. And as you do, we pray that you will come to love and obey and enjoy the God of the Bible as never before we really believe you will see things you never thought you could as you look at the book.
0: Thanks. I've done a couple of those videos myself. I went through them. They're great. Um, But I like... The idea that there's this pastor that's ministered for 40 years in the Midwest and his ministry is kind of coming to an end. He's getting up there in years and one of the projects he gave himself to partly in this last year is to just to help people will be able to look at the Bible and to get out of it what's there. Um, for those of you that are newer, the series Blueprint is basically built on the idea that um, our lives get stuck and cluttered really fast and without Our lives being built on the foundation of the gospel, they just get so massively complex that the gospel and what we're meant to be kind of gets lost in the mix. That is, a blueprint is something that simplifies something very complex, as simple as it can possibly be, but no simpler. And that blueprint for what the Christian life would look like lived out in a local church together is that we would all be committed to connecting, growing, and serving. Connecting with each other and with God. Connecting with are growing in our understanding of the gospel and knowledge of the Bible and serving by serving the city and reaching the world And so if you weren't here for week one and week two, those are online. There's YouTube videos There's audio you can listen to on our website And last week I talked about growth and that the first step in growth is understanding how there's any growth in the first place The metaphor that I used was in, um, in growing a garden I jokingly said I grew this eggplant, which of course I didn't Gardeners don't grow things, plants do right? Plants grow fruit, fruit grow seeds, seeds grow plants, plants grow fruit, fruit grow seeds, seeds grow plants. There's no gardener in that cycle. But gardeners cultivate the life that is already there. I cannot breathe spiritual life into anything. The gospel teaches that you can't either, that you cannot make yourself spiritually alive. You can't make anything or anyone spiritually alive. Only the risen Jesus, through the The converting and regenerating and changing presence of God the Spirit, changing us from the inside out, can do that. But, as you read through the Bible, there's all kinds of stuff we're told to do. What does that mean? I mean, what does that mean if God brings life? And the idea is is that God has created things in such a way that life is meant to be cultivated. The life that only he gives and that you can only get from him is not going to produce all that it can produce without the obedience of cultivation. For us to cultivate those things in our own lives and for us to participate through this people he's called the church to cultivate them in each other's lives. The the first step of that cultivation is to realize that a plant is a plant. Where the life comes from, what it is and how it functions and therefore the first step in growth has to be that we understand the gospel, we know the good news, we understand the message, we know what God is doing, that we get that, because you can't play the game until you have the game plan. But once you do, we have to fully embrace what it means to be part of doing the job of cultivating what God has told us to do. In the Explore class that people come to when they first come to High Point Church, that's at our house, one of the slides I show them is similar to this, where I show them a garden and I say, Nobody can really say that the gardener made that happen, right? That bees and sun and soil and water and biology and chemistry and physics made that happen. But nobody would look at that and be confused at all about the fact that there was at least one gardener, probably a number of them, who actually knew what they were doing and actually did a bunch of cultivating. And our spiritual life is like that. And so the issue is, what would it look like for us in an unstuck and uncluttered way, as simple as it could be but no simpler, take on what it would mean to actively cultivate our spiritual lives and be part of the cultivation of other people's spiritual lives in a way that the Bible would lead us to? There's a management book out not that long ago that was Andy Stanley talked about in his last leadership podcast. I don't remember the title. But one of the things that he took from it was he had his staff discuss this idea. If the life you wanted, if you said, what habits would I have to have to have that? And there were like 12 of them. That's a little exhausting to think about, right? Well, if I only cultivate these 12 habits, right? But he said, the writer of the book said, what if actually there was one habit or two habits that if you did those, the other ones just kind of naturally fell out, right? And so the speculation in the book is things like people who go to bed on time every day. They go to bed on time every night, they wake up at the same time every day, and they are ready for the day. When you exert self-discipline the night before, you can do what you purpose to do the day after. Or um, one of the things that people find is people who are like regimented and totally unwavering in their exercise schedule, especially if it's early in the day, right? On those three days a week, you get up, you exercise. If you can put together the self-discipline to do that— a lot of the other habits of self-discipline that need to happen as the day or the week falls out tend to happen because you're on a self-discipline role, right? Now, listen, that would be a fun conversation. Like it's like the conversation when you're going to start your diet, eating brats, watching the Packers, right? That's a very worthwhile discussion. But you could have that discussion in relationship to cultivation, the cultivation of spiritual life. Is there anything that if you do one thing, you tend to get other things too, right? Here's what it is it's fasting. That's <laughs> okay. Sorry, that's not that funny. <clears throat> in my understanding of Scripture, my understanding of how people grow in doing church ministry, and in my own personal life, there's no question in my mind that if there is something, that tends to correlate extremely strongly with real, true growth and holiness that is humble and loving, not self-righteous and ridiculous. It is when people who understand the gospel come to know the Bible. That when those two things come together, it's not a self-righteous, self-purposed, I'm going to the Bible so that it can affirm who I already am and what I already want to do. When we're centered on the gospel, what Jesus is doing, and then we go to the Bible on the basis of that and we want to listen to what it's telling us, recognizing that it's going to judge us and talk sternly to us and encourage us and and tell us that we're going to think differently and do differently. When those two things come together, the, the level of real profound change is dramatic. People grow. People end up looking spiritually like that. <clears throat> you can see this when you go to the Bible and you kind of look at what the master did, right? What did Jesus do? He had three years of ministry. Did you ever wonder why three years, right? Why not longer? Why not shorter? When you look at the gospel, I mean, he could have got himself killed quicker, right? First chapter of John, they're already trying to kill him, right? Or, I'm sorry, Mark. What you see is you see this plan that he has where, for example, in Mark's gospel, it's fairly easy to see. He calls, after just a couple chapters in, chapter 3, he calls some people together to be his apostles. And it says that he does it so that they could be with him. And in being with him, they're going to be with each other, right? Does that sound like the first two weeks at all? Connect with God, connect with others. It does, that's right. And, and And then he teaches them. But the teaching of them is connected to the first two things, right? Because what are the best teaching opportunities Jesus has? Right? When people are fighting, right? Do you look at parenting that way? (laughs) It's hard. But some of the best moments of Jesus' teaching is a bunch of people get fighting about something, named oftentimes his own disciples. And at that point, he teaches them the gospel, And one of the things he makes sure he doesn't leave before he does, after his death and resurrection, Luke's gospel, he comes back to do one last thing besides show them that he's alive. And that is it says to explain to them everything written about him in the Old Testament from the very beginning to the moment in which they were living. That is, he needed them to understand that it was the Bible that spoke about him. And before he left, he wanted to make sure that they understood him and what he did and how the Bible taught it. And then he sent them out to do what? Serve the city and reach the world. He sent them out to serve, to impact, to go, right? We'll talk about that in the next couple of weeks. Um, a few years back also, there was a major, a very large church in Chicago that did a study, and they they, they did, they went to a bunch of churches, and they tried to interview people and try to get a sense of, like, what actions or habits actually help people grow spiritually. And it was it was called the Revealed Study. Willow Creek was the church behind it, but lots of churches participated, in, including my church in Florida. <clears throat> and so they, they split people up into four categories, Christianly speaking. I'm not a Christian yet. I believe in Jesus, but I don't really know what that means yet. Jesus is important to me, and I kind of love him, and it's Good And Jesus is God, King, Lord He's I'm willing to risk anything For his purposes He's it Right But if you have four categories You have three movements Right Going from one to two Two to three Three to four And it was very clear As they did this study What tended to move people From one to two Two to three And three to four The thing that tended to move The significant majority of people From one to two Was a Christian friend That is They they ran into a Christian They didn't hate and if they thought about whether or not they would become more like them, that w- didn't sound like a terrible idea, right? Because a lot of non-Christians, they, they don't really know what it's like. They, they can't tell the difference between bad spirituality and real Christian faith. They, they can't tell the difference. And, so the, and, and guess which one is more memorable when you run into it? Right, the bad one, right? And so people have all these prejudices and bigotries that we need to forgive them for having—we have them about everything else— right? And, but they had this, like, really negative feeling about Christians, especially in a place like Madison, and it actually takes them meeting somebody who's a Christian, and they're like, well, that person's a Christian, but they're not an idiot. And they think about their life, and they get to the point where, like, other than them being a Christian, if I was more like them, that would probably be really good for me. I would be happier. My life would be better. I think I'd be a better human being, even, right? And it's, it's, at, at, it's in that relationship that causes most people to cross, sort of cross the line of faith and put their faith in Jesus. But what gets them from two to three? What gets them from, okay, I believe in Jesus, and I don't know what that really means yet, to Jesus is really important to me. I'm trying to follow him each day. And what they found the, for the vast majority of people is that they started to read the Bible for themselves. But that doesn't get you all the way there. Because at at another point—and we'll talk about this a little bit more next week— at another point, if you just learn a lot about the Bible, and you don't do anything, what happens is you begin to build this toxicity of of hypocrisy. Because what are you learning about? How Jesus poured out his life for you, and how we can pour out our lives for others. How to live a life of love, how to forgive others, how to— you start learning all these things, and if you don't do them, There's this toxicity of hypocrisy that builds up. And the effect, if if you don't purge it by doing what you're learning, it will eventually poison your heart and mind against the faith. If you're so committed to spiritual laziness, but you're learning Christian truth, eventually that will poison you from the inside out, and that hypocrisy will force you back away from the faith. Because if you don't embrace it, you're not going to live in this sort of like hypocrisy. You'll just feel disenfranchised, and this isn't any fun. And blah, blah. if you don't serve others, you will ultimately serve no one. Right? We'll talk about that more next week. The point is, is that one of the greatest correlatives of people growing in their faith, if they believe in Jesus, is for them to start to fool with the Bible themselves, reading it for themselves. Learning from it themselves, right? So there's four things we want to talk about related to the Bible this morning. The first is that you don't have to be intimidated by the Bible. God did not give us the Bible so that you could be terrified of it and not want to read it. And listen, I understand that there's lots of reasons why people are intimidated by the Bible, okay? The one I have in my office with no notes, it's just the text of the Bible, is like 1,050 pages. I mean, when was the last time you picked up a 1,000-page book was like, I think I'm going to read Anna Karenina again. Right? Not, I mean, not very often. There's also the fact that when you start reading through the Bible, it's not like a novel. It's not like a single plot line and a single kind of literature all the way through. There's, There's law, and there's like what to do with certain kinds of molds and like sacrificial systems, and there's songs and kind of poems that we don't really get, and then there's like the stories and then there's like 12 chapters Of how many people brought bowls of silver and bronze and stuff And you like, you go through and it's just It's kind of an uneven book, right? And then there's like these really cool stories about Jesus Telling somebody off and, you know And then there's, then you get to Revelation, right? I mean, you're just, okay, that's fun It's sort of a un- liter- literally uneven book And we're just not used to reading a lot of the literatures that are in there Right? And then there's lots of people who are just like, look, I don't really read all that much. I mean, in fact, I talked with somebody after last service. She said that something I said, I'm going to say later in this sermon was really encouraging for her, because she's like, when I sit down and read, it's like I have to read a sentence like five times before I really start to understand it. Some people just aren't. That's just not their thing. And here's the, here's the crazy little secret. It's the majority of humanity that feels that way, right? And then also, when you start reading some of the books of the Bible, you begin to realize that if you don't know some of the background knowledge, it's really hard to make sense of the foreground text, right? So you're kind of, I mean, just reading through the book Acts. Most, most of you have been here for a while. You don't even remember when you were reading through Acts for the first time, and there was this guy named, Paul, named Saul in the first half, and there's this guy named Paul in the second half, and people seem to refer to him like they're, he's, they're brothers or something, and you're trying to figure out what's happening, and then finally you ask, it dawns on you, is this the same guy? And Luke didn't bother to tell me. Like, you you figured at one point when he's, like, the first time he calls him Paul, he could put in parentheses or something, right? Even though Greek didn't have parentheses. This is the guy that I was calling Saul before, right? And you, like, you ask somebody, you're like, do you remember that when you did this? You were, you are like, is Paul, are they the same person?
1: Yeah. Oh. (laughs) Got it.
0: Right? You realize that there's actually an education that you need that precedes the education that you need. And that can feel really daunting because when you think you're going to do something and then you realize there's three things you need to do before you can do that thing, those are the things that are still on your to-do lists, right? The reason why getting a car tune up is still on your to-do list is because you never have gotten the phone number you need to call to call the mechanic to get it. And you're, you know that you have to do like five things and that's why it's not done. Right, and people feel that way about the Bible. They, well, I'd have to find out what a Pharisee and a Sadducee is, and I don't know who Hezekiah was, and who does the when, and the what's a testament, and maybe I belabor that a little bit. Big doesn't have to mean intimidating. Big can be awesome. Big, like okay, a big milkshake, right? That's not intimidating. That's awesome, right? So, so, grizzly bears and manatees can weigh the same amount, okay? Just because something weighs 900 pounds does not mean I'm terrified of it, right? Like, if there's, like, a list of nine things I would like to do before I die, one would be ride a manatee. I mean, I would—that is, like, right up there. I would love to do that. Riding a live grizzly bear is not on my list of things that I really want to do before I die because that would probably be—you get it? I would probably die. Okay, whatever. Um— this is a picture of Walter Woodrick, um, Lexi's and my financial planner. And um, he is a ridiculous redneck that is like a 400-pound feral hog, but he also has a master's degree in finance from Vanderbilt. And the first time we got together, he was talking to me about financial planning, and that's not my background. I only was a business major for one semester. And so um, they were just cuter girls and other majors, I don't have to tell you. And so— he started talking financial planning with me, and so the first sentence that he used actually had a word in it that I kind of knew, like, the realm of knowledge that's from, but I didn't really know what that word meant, and I thought, well, I'm an intelligent person. I'll use the context of the paragraph to understand this word, but in the second sentence, he used that word again, and he used it in context to another word I didn't know, which wasn't all that helpful. Right? And by the time we got to the end of the second paragraph, we were like on the seventh word that was building on the fourth word that was building on the second word I didn't know. And you know how you get to that point? Some of you may be experiencing it right now, where you're not really tracking enough for your brain to be willing to keep listening. Do you know what I'm talking about? It's kind of like somebody's talking and there's just, they're not building so you can follow. And you get to this jargon point and you're kind of like, your brain is like, I'm not doing this. I can't track 19 things For the hope that this guy is going to say something That I'll understand that I can plug in somewhere Right? I'm sorry if you experience that at church sometimes You will have that problem sometimes with Bible teachers That is really not the experience That you'll have with the Bible If you begin to read it And you just begin to kind of listen to what it's saying When I came home from summer camp, um, I came home from summer camp one year and I realized that um, there were a lot of pretty girls that liked Jesus. And so I said, I think I'll get a Bible. So my mom bought me the large print King James version of the Bible at the price chopper, which is like cops here kind of, right? And so I was going into sixth grade, reading Genesis, At night in my room by myself before I went to bed Because that's when people apparently connect with God Is, like, before bed or something And, I mean, I remember It was the old, it was the old King James Version Where they spell out the names phonetically So that you can actually And it's like, there's, like, fencing, fighting, incest And, like, I'm like, oh, my heavens This is very interesting But, like, I, I remember I had to read stuff a couple of times but I, underst- I understood the King James Bible When I was going into sixth grade, okay I just, I just hung with it a little bit And it made, you know Of course I stopped reading it when I got to Leviticus I was going into sixth grade, okay But the point is is that like, it's, it's actually much more understandable We tend to get this fear Where we go, oh I can't understand that Or I can't do that it, it, that's, it, You will not find it to be like financial planning Like I found financial planning You will find that the words are understandable. The context does kind of work. God has made the Bible understandable. And so that everybody in the Christian church would know the Bible was understandable, theologians came up with the word the perspicuity of Scripture so that it would be perfectly clear to everybody that the Bible was understandable. It says this in Isaiah. Fifty-five, ten to 11, this is God speaking directly through the prophet Isaiah. He says, as the rain and the snow comes down from heaven and does not return to it without watering the earth and making it bud and flourish, so that it yields seed to the sower and bread for the eater, so is my word that goes forth through my mouth. It will not return to me empty. It will accomplish what I desire and achieve the purpose for which I sent it. God's intention in giving you his word, of which the Bible is the word of God written, is that it would produce something spiritually in your life It will The second thing is Believe that the Bible is the word of God written Right That it is, it is his word to, to us And also his word that interprets his other words That is the other ways he's revealed himself now, there are some of you who are sitting out there saying, um, you're going to have to defend that, bad toad, because I, I don't think that I think that. And it, if you know me at all, you know that I want to do like a 120-minute defense of that right now. Okay? But that's not what this, this Sunday is for. What this Sunday is for, this is how do we get to know the Bible? If you go to the blog that we posted, I put up a number of resources that you can click on and go to. There's great resources that you can attack if you're actually really interested in that question. Why is it reasonable and probable and even obligatory to believe that the Bible is the Word of God written? Okay? But I can't do that right now. Right now, what I want to focus on is that the Bible is God's written word to us that is both itself the word of God, and it also interprets for us God's other revelations. Now, you might be like, wait a second, I thought, what are you saying there, Trigger? Well, here's what I mean. God's revelation, or his word in the Bible, is any way in which God reveals himself, any way that God speaks and shows himself. And scripture actually teaches that the natural creation is the way God has spoken and shown himself, that there are things, as Newton called nature, the book of God, that is... The book of nature is one of the books of God. That is, it's a way that we can know true things about God. But there's a lot of things that you could interpret from nature that wouldn't be true about God. Like things eat each other in nature mercilessly, right? Are we to conclude from the book of nature that God mercilessly eats everything that there? You know, right? There are ways to interpret, and ways not to interpret what nature means, right? But it's the Bible itself that says in Psalm 19, the heavens. Declare the glory of God Right The Bible says that the natural world tells us something about God Namely, it says in the first chapters of Romans That there is a creator And if, noth- if you can know nothing else about God You should be able to know from knowing that there's a creator That you should be thankful towards that creator And the reason that we can all be self-condemned Is that we don't even go that far Also, the Bible doesn't say that the Bible is God's greatest revelation. If you only get one revelation in Christian faith, it is the man Jesus Christ. He is the full likeness of God, uh, Hebrews one three says. Jesus says in in John five, he says, You study the scriptures because you think in the scriptures, in the Bible, you have life. No, no, no. They testify about me, he says. Right? Even when he teaches his disciples, after his resurrection, before his ascension, the significance of the Old Testament, the main thing he teaches them is that every text is about him. The, one of the reasons why the Bible is so important is not because if you put your trust in the Bible, you'll be saved. It's that if you put your trust in the Bible and you read it, you will learn about Jesus. You'll put your trust in Jesus, and through him you'll be saved. Right? And there's even other ways in which God does speak, like, can God speak to you in internal and personal impressions? Can you be like praying in the morning, reading your Bible, and feel like, "Hey, I should call so and so and such and such," and that that's God speaking to you, right? Yeah, yeah. Do we overblow that terribly? Probably. Because we've got a lot of anxious Christians running around not knowing what I should do with my life today Asking God to speak to me now and tell me what to do today When instead God has spoken to you about his character and his general will So that you as a free person can apply that in your life And he has spoken to you what you do need in the Bible And that, that in no way minimizes that God can speak to you through internal impressions It's just that the Bible sits in judgment on those And the Bible makes it so you actually don't need that many of those And God would have you attend to the Bible And what he has spoken Because here's the thing You know one of the reasons why you believe You need lots of internal impressions You know why you think that? Because you think you're special You can't read that book that's for everybody You're special, right? You're a special little snowflake Just like all the other ones Right? Right? But your, our shared humanity is much more significant for who we are than each of our divided individualities. We are just like each other, even though we're an individual just like each other. And the same thing that the Corinthians needed in the book of 1 Corinthians in the Bible. And the same thing that the Galatians needed in the book of Galatians in the Bible. And the same things that the Pharisees and the hookers and the tax collectors needed when Jesus was yelling at them, is the exact same thing we need today because we have the same fears and the same sins and the same frustrations and the same failings and the same character and the same bodies and the same everything. And when you realize that, you'll realize that what everybody has always needed from God is the exact same thing you need from God, and it is right there in the Bible. And when God does speak to you internally, or through a friend speaking into your life, or through somebody who receives a internal prophetic word—the Bible talks about this—in the Bible, it says that God will speak to people, and those people will share that message, and that message is for you, and that is a revelation, that's the word of God. But it is judged by the word of God written and it usually is a re-expression of the word of God written and it usually is an application of the word of God written. And so all of these ways that God speaks and shows himself are judged by the Bible, explained by the Bible, revealed by the Bible, categorized by the Bible, put in proportion by the Bible and made coherent by the Bible. Woe to the person that seeks to navigate the revelations of God without embracing the one that's meant to situate them and explain them and order them, right? Now, in case you have a little bit of a concern— wait a second, all of the Bible? I mean, you're talking about a book that's newest content is 2,000 years old. I think that's one of the reasons why in Matthew's gospel— he made very sure to make sure we knew how Jesus thought and felt about the part of the Bible that would be the most in question, the Old Testament. If there's a part of the Bible that's in question, it's got to be the Old Testament, right? This means yes. This means no. Right? And so Matthew writes down this teaching of Jesus in Matthew 5. He says, this is Jesus talking, Don't think I've come to abolish the law and the prophets. That's the Old Testament. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth disappear, so how long is it going to last? How long will the Old Testament be valid for us as God's word written? As long as you've got something to stand on, right? Not the smallest letter, nor the least stroke of a pen will be, by any means, disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. So is Jesus' view of inspiration... How God inspires the Bible That God inspires the general idea But the human authors can get off track And you shouldn't pay too much attention to the details Or does God stand behind every written word of the text You see, this passage says that Jesus believes That God as the divine author Stands behind every word of the written text Now listen I know that's serious business, and I know that's not the doctrine of Scripture that would be easiest for you to figure out how to believe. It just happens to be the doctrine of Scripture that the Savior held, and we should probably consider it seriously, right? Which, Christians have always called this the dual authorship of Scripture. Sometimes people at the water cooler or people who want to make you annoyed will say, well, don't you know that the Bible is just written by men? And it's always fun to say, well, actually, there's a number of sections that were written by women. And, th- and they'll, and like, kind of flip out, you know, which is always fun. Um, you probably should say might have been to make that a little bit more truthful, but it's, sometimes it's fun to be bombastic. But one of the things to say is also, okay, do you realize that the only problem word in that sentence is the word just? Because if you said, don't you realize the Bible's written by men, the answer is, like, obviously Right? I mean, are you, are you seriously asking me if after reading the Bible for 15 years, if I'm not aware that the books have human authors? Right? What they're really saying is they're presuming—they're not making a historical statement. They're presuming philosophically that, they're, that God cannot stand behind the text of the Bible as its inspiring author. Because Christians believe that not only does God speak through, through human authors, but that the message of God is actually mediated through their personality— There are a few places in the Bible where God speaks directly through a prophet verbatim. That passage in Isaiah 55 I read for you, the Ten Commandments. There are a few places where it's not mediated through a human personality. It is straight up, literally, the words God says. Right? But if you read the book of, like, let's say Galatians in the Bible, that's a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote, and 1 John, a letter that the Apostle John wrote, and you read those two within 10 minutes of each other— it would never occur to you (laughs) that their personalities had been taken out of the writing process. They're totally different books. And the personality of John is this elderly, fatherly pastor who's loving and wants to give you a hug and then punch you in the face. Like, that comes across really strong. Whereas... You know, Paul, that he wants to break his leg off in your lower regions and then hug you while he beats on you and says, Look, you, you're losing the gospel, right? And then in another place, Paul even speaks very differently, right? It's mediated. I mean, think about it. What do, we, what do we do with preaching, right? Now, what I'm doing is not, is not authoritative like the written Bible, but this is one of the reasons we do this is we, we want the word of God to be re spoken, but it's always sadly, in some ways, Mediated through the personality of the speaker And so in the Bible Every passage, every word of the Bible Well not every word of the Bible But most of the Bible has two authors Some passages only have the author big A God But most of them have two authors A human author, the author small a And a divine author, the author big A And Jesus believed that the author big A Was the biggest deal in that Okay Number three And that is And I know this one's going to be tough, but see if you can track this idea, okay? Right? You're going to have to do something. If you want to know the Bible, if you want to benefit from it, if you want to grow because of it, if you want to be part of the habit that makes the other ones, if you want to know the Savior that you say you've believed in, if you want to find out about the Savior that you're being called to investigate, you're going to have to do something. You're going to have to actually, you know, read it. Or something There's a number of things that you can do Like actions that you can take to do something Besides just walk out And start reading the Bible And not stopping till you're done Right One is if you don't even want to read the Bible Because you don't even like you know, Why should I believe in that Well then the first thing you might want to do Is to read something or watch something or, And learn why the Bible is so important Trustworthy You might need to avail yourself of the arguments For why you should trust the Bible And there are some good ones So be careful Another one is instead of reading the Bible in little verses as though it was some kind of magic spiritual medicine that if you read a verse and you kind of thought about it or you just read, an, you know, that kind of thing, the Bible actually isn't meant to be read like that, right? Luke isn't meant to be read in verses. It's a whole story. It's meant, these books are meant to be sat down. When Paul, when Paul sent 1 Corinthians to Corinth, I guarantee you what happened is the pastor got up and read the whole letter all the way through. That is, we're meant to read whole books, so sit down and read all of Ephesians. It's all of four pages, right? You could read Luke in a couple of sittings. It's maybe 20 pages. Because it's in two columns and it's God's word, we just don't think we can ingest very much of it. But it's not like that. Especially the portions that are narrative. It's a story. Just read it. Just because it's true and of infinite significance doesn't change the fact that you can just flat read it. And you will learn so much more when you get the big picture that you'll never get if you keep going to the Bible in these little verses and you wonder why you don't get a sense of its grandeur and its size and its beauty and its scope and its flow. Quit reading the Bible, like, devotionally, if that's what you're always doing, and just sit down, and if your devotional time is, let's say, 10 minutes, just read as much as you can for 10 minutes. Don't stop to ask any questions. Just read it through. And what you'll find is you'll get the sense of what the whole book is about. And then you can always go back and sort your way through little bits. The Bible's meant to be read like that. Another is, if you haven't already done this, is start having what Christians sometimes call a quiet time or a devotional, okay? It's kind of like Christian jargon, but it's descriptive because during a quiet time, one of the most important things is to go somewhere that's quiet, right? And why do you read the Bible? It's to it's to daily do something to increase your devotion to Jesus, right? So it's called devotionalist or quiet times. But the whole idea is you go somewhere for a quiet amount of time and you do something with the Bible that will increase your devotion to Jesus, which usually in- includes something like this. You pray and ask God to help you understand his word. You read some of it. You think about what you just read and what you're going to do with that. It's very complicated. Right? There's a navigator's journal that I have that, that breaks it down to a seven-minute devotional. A half a minute to pray, ask God to help, read the Bible for four minutes, you pray and think about what you just read for two and a half minutes. It's not that long. Here's the good thing about it. Whatever you do, it's good if you do something that's possibly expandable. Start with seven minutes. And you can always, you can always expand it to ten if you want to, you know, or an hour. It's always expandable, and it's also retractable. Just because you have a—you work up your quiet time to 25 minutes doesn't mean you can't have a six-minute quiet time one day. It's the habit that makes it so helpful. Another one is listening to an audio Bible. You see, um, how many people have a commute that's more than 10 minutes? You know, what are you listening to, right? Um, now, some people kind of have this inner thing. they be like, but that's not reading the Bible. That's listening to the Bible. Okay, what do you think was the author of the Bible's intention when they wrote it down? D- do you think that they thought that people were going to own Bibles? Right? I mean, every author of the Bible believed that their work would be copied at great expense and then read to people. This, this is true in synagogues today. They get out the thing they wrote and they read it out loud, right? Even in, in, in church, we read the scripture out loud, right? Even though you have a Bible, why do we do? We could just say, everybody read silently. You know, why does Paul say in Timothy, um, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture? Because people didn't have scriptures and they couldn't read them, and the scriptures were learned by hearing. It may be more true to the intention of the text of the Bible for you to listen to it than to read it. It was written and designed for listening. And it turns out that now that in the age of smartphones and apps, I mean, now you can do this free with a very competent reader. This app, um, the U version of the Bible, my wife uses it. She, while she's cleaning, she just puts it on, turns it on, does dishes, and listens to the Bible. And, you know, it's only got 155 million downloads, so it's probably not any good. But you probably can find something out there that would be helpful. Right? And you can plug it into your augs in the car. You can do it while you're cleaning the house. You can listen to it while you're mowing the lawn. And you can make it through large portions of the Bible and learn about what it teaches and says. You can read the Bible with other people. It makes the learning curve a lot faster. And here's one of the things I need to tell you. There are these places, okay? Whole rooms, dedicated, to people coming together at certain secret times In which there are teachers provided That have studied the Bible for decades Who go into these places And for a relatively extended period of time Like an hour to 90 minutes People read and study and learn the Bible together Now, for years They were given a terribly prejud- prejudicial and bigoted name That have driven you away Sunday school And who wants to go to more school? It's crazy! Right? Right? And now, there's the dawning of a new era. We just call them classes, right? And you could go to them. And there are people teaching them. Usually, about half of our Sunday classes are on a book of the Bible, where you don't just learn that book of the Bible, but you learn how to study every book of the Bible. And we have them every week. They're taught by very competent people. If they stink, you should come and complain to me and to Lloyd and say, These stink. Can you get some good teachers? Because I want to learn the Bible right? And until you do that, don't complain. And listen, there's children's ministry for your kids. And listen, you might think, look, my kid has to get home for a nap. Listen, your kid is going to be better off. They're going to get some animal crackers. They're going to learn about Jesus. They're not going to die. And you will grow as a human being, as a husband or a wife, or as a parent. You will grow, and your kid will be much better off. And you're already stinking here. I mean, what is another ninety minutes? Now, I realize that's not the most positive way to encourage. It's a little it's a little condescending. But I mean think about this. If you if you go, wait a second, I need to learn the Bible. It'd be very easy to just walk out of here and it never occurred to you that I should just go to a Sunday class. That's why we have them. They're very helpful. Your teacher does not have to like repel in from the ceiling and explode big gas bombs to make it worth being there to learn about the Bible. In fact, you want a relatively boring teacher, not that we have any. But you want somebody who's not gonna like spoon feed you everything and keep you wrapped You should be looking at your bible and reading it yourself and asking questions and working it out Because the job isn't for them to teach you isaiah It's for you to read it and for you to learn to interpret it and understand it so that you can feed yourself spiritually from the bible You can cultivate your own spiritual life with the life that god gives so that you can grow And you can use sunday classes to do that that's why we have them right Right And lastly, you can write down what you learn to make it more a part of you. Here's why um, diaries are a terrible idea, or journals if you're masculine, um, where you write down how you're feeling. One of the reasons why some colleges are realizing it might not be a very good idea that we've given kids laptops is because you learn a lot more and you clarify in your your mind a lot more when you have to write things out. When you write something out, it does something to you in the learning process that doesn't happen when you type. So, if you've got like a 14-year-old girl that's like hormonally crazy and she hates her parents and the whole world's against her, and she goes and she opens up her diary and she writes that all down. Do you see the problem? It's a problem, okay? You need to blow those things up. Anyway, but here's what you could do. You could take that human reality and you could use it to your benefit. In fact, one of the things that people don't know because they don't read the Bible is that in Deuteronomy 17:18, there's this verse about the first thing every king had to do when he first became king of Israel. He said, "Whenever anybody becomes king of Israel, here's the, before they can do anything else, here's what they have to do. What is it? Anybody want to shout it out? They had to copy the whole Bible down by hand themselves. They couldn't pay money to have some scribe do it. They had to sit, and sit down. If they didn't know how to write, they had to learn." And they had to start from the beginning, and they had to write out every word. And it says, so that they will learn to fear the Lord, and they will understand the Lord's statutes, because God knew if they didn't just read it, they wrote it out themselves. One, they couldn't really have an excuse to say, well, i never do that. You wrote it out, buddy. It's right here. Right? But they also would learn it and understand it and make it part of them. In fact, there's this new series called the 1718 series. I have the Romans copy, where it's not a journal on the Bible— They make you write it out. (laughs) Is that funny? So it's kind of like, yeah, we published a journal and charged you a lot of money for it. And so that you can write out the Bible. So you actually, you go to this thing, right? You get these on Amazon. There's verse one. So I have to write out verse one. And then this page is for my notes and what I want to do and I can circle stuff and whatever. But I have to write out the Bible myself and then write out my notes myself. The idea is that because when I write it out rather than type it out, I will remember it. It will, and so here's what I'm learning about God. I write about what God says, and then here's what I'm learning about God. That is a hundred times better than a diary or journal, a hundred times better, because I'm I'm putting this in rather than taking what's in and putting it down and making it more part of what's in. It's part of the destructive. It's getting away from the destructiveness of modern introversion. And listen, I'm an introvert. There's a lot of great things about introverts But one of the ways we can be destructively introverted And self-focused Is by writing down our feelings and, uh, Right? and Write down the Bible Write down what you're learning about the Bible Write down things that you want to keep in When you write things down You're not getting them out You're getting them in deeper So be careful what you write down Lastly Get help and use tools Can you imagine what Athanasius in the 4th century would be thinking about the stuff we have at our fingertips? St. Jerome, like, trying to get, like, these dated Hebrew scrolls and terrible Latin translations, traveling on different continents to find these things so that he could, like, look at them all by hand and relearn Hebrew from scratch so that he could create, like, a pretty good Latin translation as part of his life's work. And what do we have to do to find out anything we want to find out about the Bible? It's like three keystrokes. And there it is. Every time this Greek word shows up in the entire Bible, boom, it's there. Every time this shows up in English, what's a, sat, what's a Pharisee? Oh, click, Pharisee. Oh, there it is. There's a nice article about it. I mean, the, the, the translations, the English translations, are unbelievable how good they are. And if you don't like one, and you, you, there's like 19 others that you can read and compare to each other. The commentary is in English. I mean, it's just, it's unbelievable. The number, the quality, and the cost effectiveness. You're like, $30 for a commentary? Okay, do you know how much a book cost in 1200 You know, like, adjusted for inflation? About $500. Or more. And we just kind of go, yep, I'll do that. You can buy, you can buy an English study Bible in New International Version for $25. It's the Bible With a seminary's education worth of notes just kind of stuck in there. Right? It's, it's incredible, but you know, we just kind of like, we, no society owns as many Bibles as America, and no society's ever had as many Bibles that have never been opened. Some of these are functional tools like buying Bibles and getting the right one. All this is on that blog. If you want to know, like, where should you start reading the Bible? What study Bible do I recommend? What translation is a good one to start with? Those kinds of questions are all on that blog. Go to Engage and Equip. It's just hpcmadison.org. Plus, there's almost everything we do at the church is to help you do this. Classes, small groups— Bible studies, youth and children's ministry is meant to partner with you to teach your kids about the Bible. The men's and women's ministries have been working for months to put together a really robust mentoring program that we're going to hopefully get going publicly here in the next couple months. We have already have people meeting together, but we're going to do it more publicly in the next couple months. And a big part of that is people who are really experienced reading the Bible helping people who aren't very experienced reading the Bible. Can you imagine how fast you could learn if you met with somebody one-on-one every week and they were just ramping up your speed of getting to know something? Let me end with this. So I'm 37. I probably made a credible profession of faith when I was like 14. And then I kind of squirreled around for a while. And then, in, and then I went um, to this camp, Beaver Camp, which is where I became a Christian as a counselor. And one of the things that they made you do every day, that is they set aside time for that and nothing else, was I had an hour every day to have a devotional time. And I was free. of The kids, I had somebody else watching the kids. I was a counselor for, and I just had an hour on my hands to like read the Bible and pray is basically what I was, at, you know, or nap, I guess. And so I would go to the swing, and I'd never really read the Bible like that before, but I had this block of time, and I was glad to be away from those kids. And so I sat down on the swing, and I looked at the lake, and I opened the Bible, and I just read for thirty minutes every day. And then when I went to my freshman year in college, eleven a.m. to twelve noon. Was Bible and prayer time. Everybody on my floor knew that. Don't come interrupt Nick because Nick is reading his Bible and praying. And I would journal, I wouldn't journal my feelings, I would journal what I was learning from the Bible and applying that to my life. And by the middle of the semester of my freshman year, I was having a conversation with my RD who was like in her 30s. And she was like, You know what's eerie about you? In some ways, you're just as immature as anybody else in the building. And then in other ways, it's like you've got 50 years or 80 years of wisdom. It's weird. But, you know, one of the things I was doing every day was, one of the things you can do in your devotions is you can read the the rest of the Bible, and then Proverbs, the book of wisdom, has like a chapter per day of the month. It's 31 chapters. So you can read one chapter a day, and you can read it every month. That's all that happened. I was just reading the Bible and thinking about what I was learning and— Taking in its wisdom and drinking deep and getting fertilized. And before I knew it, they were like eggplants falling off of me, and I was an idiot. I still am. But but that fertilization and the cultivation of what the Bible will do to you, it will, it will have the same effect on you. You're not alone. You don't have to be intimidated by the Bible. It is the word of God written. And if you will just do something, do anything, alone or with others, the cultivation of knowing God's world will produce in you something you really have not yet fathomed. It will be beautiful. It will be powerful. Let's pray. Father, as we um, get ready to close our time with some singing and some praying and some meditating on what we, um, we just talked about, I pray that you'd help us to see what there is to see. I pray that the things that I've said that you agree with, that you would really press in on people's hearts and minds. I pray in Jesus' name, amen.